The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with uh, Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We do have a special introductory offer to all three newsletters. They're offers, separate offers, each and of themselves. You can uh, call my assistant in New York. That's Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Or you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, uh, to, uh, to find out about this and a whole lot more of what uh, Chen, Roger, and I are up to. Uh, the best website, however, to go to for everything that I'm involved with is jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-M-E-D-I-A.com. There you can access this radio show, all three newsletters, uh, videos that I do with CEOs of companies. And by the way, I just finished uh, interviewing 14 companies in Vancouver this past weekend. I think uh, they're going to be... Uh, a lot of very, very good companies uh, that uh, we will have on video for you to watch uh, within the next couple of weeks. Uh, you can also see uh, various times when I've been on CNBC, Fox, and BNN uh, at jtaylormedia.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are... Crocodile Gold Corp., Go West Limited, Trevally Mining Corp., Entertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals Corp., Ariga Gold Corp., Sand Gold Corp., and Palangio Explorations. Well, the show this week was pre-recorded uh, in total because I am attending and speaking at the Academy and Finance Conferences in Geneva and Zurich, Switzerland this week, and I hope to have a report to share with you when I return from Switzerland next week, perhaps bring some some new company ideas to you. 
but we will also have Peter Grandich on next week as my main guest. Peter always has an awful lot of very valuable things to say about the market. I don't know of anybody who's more street smart uh, with respect to the markets than Peter Grandich, always very worth listening to. This week I'm hitting on a topic that is far afield from the norm, just as I did a few weeks ago when we uh, discussed theology on this show. <clears throat> Excuse me, Dr. Jen Glenn Fitchner, uh, who has written a book called Cannabinomics, is going to me, be with me in a, in a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Fitchner lays out the medicinal case for marijuana. While this may seem like a topic that's not all that appropriate for this show, I think it is much more fitting than it would seem at first blush. And I say that because it hits on politics and I think what is increasingly a fascist economic scenario here in America where big corporate interests dictate policies. Who were the folks who convinced Richard Nixon to wage a war on drugs and to penalize severely all those who use marijuana, including those who were using it for medicinal purposes? Dr. Fitchner will offer some ideas about who those interests might have been uh, and who were behind this uh, policy when Nixon went against his own committee, who suggested he not do that, uh, and in fact made a suggestion that he made uh, marijuana legal uh, for uh, and make it available for people to use for medicinal purposes. Well, without a doubt, directly apropos for this show is my interview with George Preary. He's the new president of Sand Gold, and if you listen to this former senior executive at Placer Dome. I think you will start to understand why I have turned very, very bullish on this new gold producer from Rice Lake Mines uh, in Manitoba. Of course, Sandgold is a sponsor to this show. I do own shares myself in my uh, retirement account, and I have recommended it in my newsletter, but I have turned much more bullish more recently with the uh, arrival of Mr. Preary, who has an operating experience uh, and is doing a gangbuster job at Sandgold since he's joined the company. The company is, for the first time, hitting its numbers and exceeding its numbers, under-promising, over-delivering, always uh, the trademark of very successful operators and experienced management. Well, with very little time for me to talk this week, I'm going right into the first commercial break, and as soon as I come back, George Prairie will join me to tell you what is happening at Sandgold. Don't go away. I'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. 
please visit our website at www.crockgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CN. NSX Exchange. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, today George Peary. He's the president and CEO of Sand Gold. Uh, we've talked to Dale Ginn in the past, uh, and we've uh, so some of you, many of you, are familiar with uh, the story, a uh, Sand Gold story. But it is a story that is evolving, and uh, it's a company that I think has a great deal of promise in the future. I've always believed that, which is why I've had it as a uh, top recommendation in my newsletter in the past. <clears throat> but uh, as I say, things are changing uh, for the better, I believe, for Sand Gold, and so uh, we really want to get into some of those details in a minute. For those of you who may not be familiar with this company, it trades uh, in on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol SGR. You can buy it down here in the United States uh, over-the-counter uh, under the symbol SGRCF. There's approximately 309 million shares outstanding. The recent price, uh, around $3.00 giving it a market cap of around $930 million. And as I say, this has been a company that has been a long-term favorite of mine. There have been some disappointments. I think, uh, you know, we're always optimistic when new mining projects start up, but more often than not, 
there are some uh, some kinks that need to be worked out, and uh, sometimes uh, little mining companies that start uh, from scratch and start to uh, prove up uh, ounces of gold or whatever in the ground need some uh, need to bring on some new talent uh, to help make uh, just to help get the job done because quite frankly a mining operation is a very complicated task it takes multiple skills from exploration to uh, to production uh, and so Sandgold has added some new people and uh, George Peary is uh, uh, the new president and CEO of Sandgold as Dale Ginn has taken over as, as chairman of the company. So I want to welcome um, George. Welcome very much to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to be uh, on the show with you today. I would like to start out uh, by asking you to let our listeners know a little bit about your background because I think you know it's always about people. Uh, good people will make average assets into something good. Um, you can have a great asset, and management that doesn't have the skill sets won't make it happen. I happen to believe, um, I believe that Sandgold's Rice Lake property is is a very good asset with lots of upside potential. So I've always believed this was going to be a winning project, uh, and and now it seems as though uh, with the the addition of yourself and some other personnel that uh, the pieces are coming together, but maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and um, uh, and how you fit into the sand gold story. Well, certainly, Jay. I, my experience, bulk of my mining experience has uh, been in the, in the Canadian Archean with uh, with Placer Dome. Uh, I grew up and was born and raised in South Park Bend, actually at the mine site villages of Dome and Domex. Uh, in fact, there was a member of my family that started there in 1919 and has worked there to to uh, to today. So uh, actually, my whole uh, life, if you will, has been in in mining, and and uh, the bulk of my career up there, starting with uh, with the Panama organization within Naranda, and came over to to, uh, to Dome and Placer Dome in 19, uh, 1985, and with a career that uh, was lucky enough to basically see every operation and exploration um, um, uh, opportunity that was within uh, Placer Dome at the time, and. Ended up being um, CFO of Plastome North America and then CF- CFO of Plastome Canada. Became president and CEO of Plastome Canada and executive vice president of Plastome Inc. And um, uh, before before leaving there, I was in charge of the Canadian operations and then went on as president and CEO of uh, Breakwater Resources, which had operations globally. Uh, and a, a pleasure to be with with Sand Gold and certainly in, and enjoy your um, uh, share your enthusiasm for the. For the opportunity, that's exactly why I'm here because of the opportunity and the uh, and the people. I've been uh, I've been asked in the in the six months I started there, and I started with the company in December. Just um, how I feel about it as I, I go out and tell the story and explain what we're doing at um, at Sand Gold, and uh, I can tell you uh, with certainty that I'm even more enthusiastic and more passionate about about this opportunity and and the fact that this is a company building asset. Uh, they say combination of, of very good people and just an absolutely uh, outstanding uh, project in in Bisset. Um, mm-hmm. Just uh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's a, a very impressive background and certainly one that would seem to fit very well with the needs of Sandgold. You had uh, really since you've come into the picture there um, already things have started to improve. Uh, we've seen uh, quarter the first quarter earnings. Um, well, we say cash flow positive cash flow. You're uh, your revenues increased from uh, 14 million to 19.8. Uh, that's uh, the like quarter of last year, 2010 to this year, 2011. You had a 60% decline in the cost in the cash cost 
of production. Uh, still uh, somewhat high, I would say, at $862, but nonetheless a big improvement. And uh, cash flow from operations, uh, positive cash flow. So the company is not draining cash now in its operations, but actually contributing to uh, to the cash um, resources of the company. Could you tell our listeners how uh, how these improvements have taken place, and, and perhaps you can project into the future um, how what your cost structure might look like? Yeah, we were. We, uh, I have been talking with uh, with Dale and the and the um, senior executives with the uh, with Sangul for about five months prior to joining in in um, in December, and um, we put to, put the uh, budget together in in um, in December uh, for the company. And obviously, we wanted to do one thing: we wanted to um, under promise and and uh, over deliver uh, over deliver. Uh, we put a budget together that was uh, calls for 80,000 ounces of of uh, production in 11, calls us for exiting the year at $650 an ounce, and it's the combination of ramping up the production, increasing uh, the mill throughput, and developing into uh, these new areas that we have been discovering that we've we've subsequently called the uh, shoreline basalt. The uh, plan is coming together very very nicely. The expiration is coming together very very nicely, um, and consequently, with the increase in the uh, throughput. You drive down the unit costs, and as we get into these uh, these newer areas along the shoreline basalt, the grade increases. We had a very conservative projection for the grade of 0.2 ounces uh, per ton. Uh, we had a, uh, an average throughput the, for the year of of, uh, of 1,200 uh, tons per day, exiting the year at 1,600 tons a day. And the, why we've been successful in in, um, in beating our costs and and and, and uh, uh, having higher than average um, uh, throughput is the fact that uh, we've we've been um, uh, we've been excep- exceptional um, in increasing our productivity with the the new equipment that we've had on on uh, site. The productivity per per man has increased, and so we find ourselves exceeding our our um, average um, daily throughput uh, in the first quarter and uh, to, to date in the second quarter. And in fact, we had uh, projected um, in our forecast. We had uh, we had in our guidance. We had said that we'd be putting about five million dollars into the mill to uh, augment our flotation circuit, and that would be um, happening um, in around the July, the second half of the year. That would see us uh, uh, exiting the year at sixteen hundred tons a day, and uh, we're already producing um, uh, on any given day greater than sixteen hundred tons mm. a day, and that's without the uh, that's without the five million addition to the to the uh, uh, flotation cells. In fact, the flotation cells were on our critical path to uh, exit the year at uh, that 1,600 ton a day. Mm. So, with the uh, with the completion of the uh, installation of the flotation circuit and uh, and pumps, we would expect to be uh, uh, averaging around 1,800 ton a day. We expect that uh, uh, our grade will uh, increase. In fact, we're above uh, in in May. We've had a great a great month in May where we've seen our uh, ounces exceed our our um, our, our budget. And our cash, our cash costs better than than budget, so we're very, very confident that we'll exceed both on the production and the um, and the and the cash um, and be lower than the, the projected cash costs. The, the guidance that we've given on our cash costs, we haven't um, we haven't reforecast, and uh, uh, we won't as yet until uh, <clears throat> until we see ourselves uh, with that um, flotation circuit in place, but. The uh, plan is to come together very, very nicely. The team that has uh, been uh, put in place that has, was there uh, prior to my uh, uh, arrival, uh, we've augmented it with a, a few more uh, geologists and engineers. Um, 
is just gelling very, very, very nicely. Uh, they're very confident in each other and comfortable with each other, and uh, that's essentially why we're uh, we're exceeding our um, our objectives. Mm-hmm. The expiration is is truly outstanding. Um, we have that um, twenty five million dollar roughly expiration uh, budget this year, uh, which is very, very aggressive. For uh, it's it's actually um, on a single site basis, it equals um, the the um, anything that I've seen in my career on a single site basis for uh, expiration dollars. It's around three hundred thousand uh, meters of uh, of expiration, which is phenomenal. We have fifteen drills. Uh, we'll shortly have sixteen drills on site, both drilling um, the shorter holes to a thousand feet and deeper holes to the forty five hundred foot. Um, as we as we explore on and extend the strike and the depth of uh, of these new discoveries along the shoreline basalt, the the um, the uh, exploration results have uh, um, been outstanding, and we'll have probably a, a hundred holes or so that uh, that we'll release hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks, hopefully next week, but if not next week, the week uh, the week after. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with that type of program, uh, we expect to have an exponential increase in our, uh, our resources, um, our, our 43-101, and the 43-101 will be uh, completed uh, at the end of the year. Uh, we'll complete our probably in, in, in January of, of, uh, of 12. With with that, and uh, we will be updating the market on on exactly what our our, our three and five year and uh, life of mine plans are um, as we build this mine. the the real ups, The real upside we have, of course, is that we are able to um, develop in off of existing infrastructure within the Rice Lake mine mm-hmm. uh, and develop off of off of ten, sixteen, and twenty six into this shoreline basalt. So. Um, we we have a couple hundred million dollars worth of infrastructure that's already built that uh, we will be driving these drifts on in and and uh, it, that's exactly what allows us to to exponentially or will allow us to exponentially increase our uh, resources um, because we'll be able to to uh, get in and access them off of existing infrastructure down mm-hmm. around the five thousand foot level. Mm-hmm. So just a uh, outstanding, stunning opportunity uh, with uh, with Sand Bull. Mm-hmm. That certainly is a very aggressive drill program, as you say, the, the biggest you've seen on a single site, $25 million with the, that many drills going. I have to think that bigger picture, longer term, you're thinking something bigger possibly than 1,800 tons per day. Certainly. We uh, we have been telling the marketplace that uh, the money that we spent uh, on the mill to get it to that uh, 1,800 to 2,000 uh, ton a day, uh, we will incrementally not be not be putting uh, much more money into that mill until we determine how big and how um, how big the ore body is and, mm. and in fact what the optimum size of the mill is our our guys on site our engineering uh, our engineers and geologists are now becoming very very comfortable with that uh, with that concept because they're becoming more confident in the um, in the ore body and and uh, really uh, uh, enthusiastic about that uh, about that possibility. Of course, the greater throughput that you have, the uh, the uh, the lower the cutoff grade that you can uh, you can drive it to. And and with the type of grade uh, we've got, I mean the heart of these um, I mean the heart of these these uh, lenses um, has exceptional grade. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. We have drill results that are an incredible number of drill results that are greater than than an ounce per ton. Of course, you would have seen the drill results at uh, spectacular—a couple of ounces mm-hmm. over 40 feet. 
yes. what you want to be able to do is is actually mine these lenses to the to the fringe of the lenses as well, where you get into grades like um, you know 0.15 ounces a ton or 0.11. And in my career, those types of grades uh, were phenomenal. I mean, just truly phenomenal. When I was working at uh, Miranda in the Pamor division, we uh, in the early 80s when the price of gold was it peaked at, I'm sorry, in the early, uh, in, yeah, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and mm-hmm. we were working with gold that was um, six to $800 an ounce. So we had two, 3,000 ton-a-day mills there mm-hmm. and uh, producing about 10,000 ounces a month. Well, I mean, our, our grade was 0.06 ounces per ton, mm-hmm. the lowest grade for any underground mm-hmm. gold mine in, the, in North America. Well, mm-hmm. you, you, get into, you get into the grades that we're talking about, and um, you've just got phenomenal opportunities, too, to... Uh, to uh, increase and um, uh, increase that uh, increase that throughput uh, dramatically, sure. uh, and still experience the months where you have uh, blowout uh, blowout months from a from a ounce point of view because you're you're hitting this exceptionally high grade material in the heart of these lenses, mm-hmm. and that was certainly our experience when I was running Red Lake. I mean, this is in the uh, Red Lake Greenstone Belt, Manitoba side of that Red Lake Green, Green Greenstone Belt in Rice Lake, and. Uh, the rock is the same, the genesis is the same, and, and uh, consequently the opportunity is the same. So um, that's why we've got the exact, uh, aggressive drill program. Um, that's why we've, we've got, we'll have a very aggressive drill program next year as well to uh, determine just, uh, just how big this ore body is. And, um, you know, what, the money that we're spending is, is still being spent just to define this ore body down to, you know, that uh, 4,500, uh, you know, 5,000-foot horizon. Well, the mm-hmm. top of the high-grade lens in Red Lake was hit at 6,000 feet. So, yeah. And they're now down there to 7,500 feet. So, again, the um, this this type of exp- uh, exponential increase in the in the resource is entirely possible and, and entirely probable um, within within the, within the, the beset operation. What sort of uh, cutoffs are you using at current gold prices now? Well, it's uh, we 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 have a we have a cutoff. We'll take a uh, we'll we'll take a eight gram and seven gram material through there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's uh, it's really a a, a, f- a factor of of uh, being limited by the uh, the mill right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have stockpiles. We had a stockpile roughly a twenty thousand ton stockpile in front of the mill. Uh, at the end of the first quarter, and that stockpile has increased, uh, and will have uh, will have increased by the end of the second quarter. Um, and uh, the objective is again to get that uh, that mill um, throughput to to a, to a rate where, in fact, we can put the uh, the incremental tons uh, through the mill that we mm-hmm. we see in in front of us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, certainly the higher the higher throughput the the, the greater the mill uh, capacity uh, the the um, you know this incremental this incremental feed and I say incremental feed at uh, like 0.1 ounce mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, that's, that's that's tremendous great yeah no doubt um, you know in the past I thought that the problem there the bottleneck was in the ability to pull enough ore to feed the mill. Now you're telling me it's the other way around. Basically, you've got a mill. You're able to feed that mill now to its capacity. Uh, is that right? And then... And that's that's entirely right, Jay. And that, mm-hmm. that's, in fact, what uh, where we are. Um, mm-hmm. you, your mill uh, should be designed to... to, uh, to ma- well, your mill has to be designed uh, around what the ore body can uh, deliver. 
and uh, as we as we get into our uh, exploration and development and delineation uh, of this ore body, we're we're still discovering and determining just how big this ore body will be and what the optimum size uh, for that mill is. So yeah, we're. We're choking the mill now, and that's uh, any good mining operation. That's where you want to be. You want to have lots of tons in front of the mill, and and um, uh, it it uh, will lead to the uh, optimization of that ore body. Sure. Now you're spending 25 million dollars uh, for exploration. Will that be funded from internally generated cash flow? Yeah, we're we're uh, we're funding that now from uh, from our uh, cash flow. We were sitting with. Uh, um, more than more than fifty million bucks, sixty million bucks in the in the uh, in cash in the mm-hmm. right now, uh, and, and that uh, certainly more than enough to expand or to uh, to cover any any um, capital requirements, both from uh, both from the underground development point of view and um, and uh, as well cover off the cover off the uh, expiration and as I say, all of our all of our um, cash requirements required are being met from operations now. So it's a it's a uh, and it'll only get better. Uh, this, it's really good to see you have a very aggressive drill program like that. I would think it won't be too long, even though you're drilling some pretty long holes, uh, and they're probably fairly expensive holes, but it shouldn't, with such an aggressive drill program, it shouldn't be too long before we start to see uh, resource numbers climb, I would, I would think and hope, fairly dramatically. Well, that's the objective. The again, um, we're both we're, we've got an under, we were drilling from underground and and from uh, surface. As we step out, we've got a couple of long. Um, the shoreline basalt has been extended a couple of kilometers uh, already past double uh, seven, double seven east, and now we've, we'll be calling it east of east. I guess I you know as we as we come to the terminology on these these, mm-hmm. these lenses. Um, and we've both got, as I say, up to a th- shallower holes up to a thousand feet deep, and the deep drills are out there uh, to, do, to to uh, to drill the deep holes down to the 4,500 foot, and then we'll wedge off them to pick up the lenses um, as they as they plunge to depth. So we can, uh, and again, the idea is that we extend the continuity not just along um, along surface, along strike, but to depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you have the exponential. That's where we have the exponential increase in the in the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, the putting together the 43 uh, uh, 101 report, of course, is a very prescriptive process, and um, we'll be completing that again on the, on the completion of the uh, the drilling campaign campaigns this year. Um, and uh, January would be the time frame for that. Mm-hmm. I was uh, wondering what you're talking about drilling at 4,500 or 5,000 feet down. Actually, when I visited the Rice Lake project a few years ago, I was down there 5,000 feet. And it, the temperatures got a little bit warm down there. What are the practical limits depth-wise here? And, and um, I guess these, these systems very often run to great depths, but what are the yeah. practical limits um, these days, given current technologies as for, in terms of depth, the mining at depth? Well, the nature of our ore—I mean, it's a, it's uh, it's gold and and quartz and silica. We we have very little uh, sulfides. At all, and if you want to talk about hotter bodies, then you know you can go into the Timmins Creek uh, operation where they're mining down to the 12,000 foot horizon or into mm-hmm. into Sudbury. Um, very very hot there, uh, and it's and it's uh, they're doing it without. Uh, certainly, it's it's hot. The working conditions aren't uh, optimum at that level, mm-hmm. and at, much deeper in the sulfide mines, in the base metal mines, uh, as as Kid Creek and the Timmins, uh, you would start to talk about air conditioning. 
um, we we uh, are nowhere near that. Uh, the deepest mine for many years was the, the McIntyre mine in Timmins, and the sump was at 8,200 feet. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they had part of that ore body in the in the Pearl Lake Porphyry. It was a copper deposit in the middle of it, and, and they operated down to 8,200 feet without any problems at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, actually when it's 40 below zero in the wintertime, it's it's nice to go to a nice warm work face. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be. But... Uh, but but hot is hot no matter what season it is and the uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, uh, and then you're talking about of course additional costs but that's not a factor right now uh, air conditioning no it won't be I don't I don't anticipate in the future it'll be a factor at all quite frankly yeah. with the nature of our ore body yeah um, what so when might we expect an upgraded uh, an updated uh, 43101 that. Will be uh, as I as I've said the nature of the uh, of the process is it's very prescriptive. We've yeah. got a very aggressive drill program. We'd be expecting to finish that drill program and updating the 431 in, in January. But um, following the press releases uh, again starting next week or the week after, or recommencing next week or the week after, we've had some excellent drill releases earlier in the year. Um, and and uh, we'll do it on regular interview interviews intervals uh, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the year, and and uh, the these uh, drill results will be plotted on uh, on our website. So uh, any interested investor will be able to to kind of put the to see where we're going with this mm-hmm. uh, without the the 43101 being published. But that that is a very prescriptive document, and that will be. Um, that will be done in completed uh, in, in January of of, um, of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had some very good drill results within the Rice Lake um, complex itself in the 98 veins as we've drilled up into that structure. And mm-hmm. in fact, that site this week, looking at one of the most beautiful specimens of, of gold and quartz that I've that I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. career. Um, that that includes the Dome and Campbell and other places mm-hmm. that have uh, uh, exceptional. Exceptional um, uh, sample quality uh, uh, coming from the from the uh, from the mines and and boy we're producing them ourselves there. Mm. But it certainly is a very a very good story and I think getting better one that will I expect will get better. That's why I've got my personal some personal money in this account uh, in this stock and uh, but there always are risks. Um, maybe one last question before we let you go. Could you give us uh, some sense of for people who buy the stock now at three dollars? Or thereabouts. What is the biggest risk they may face? I mean, there is always market risks, of course. Uh, but can you think of anything else? What might you be? I know things are looking really good, but I like to always ask this question: What is the biggest risk people might face if they buy uh, your shares at this at these levels? The um, as you say, there's already always market risks and and there's price risks. But as we drive the cost of the operation, we're, we'll become uh, very price insensitive, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, very safe place to invest from a from a um, a, a gold perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, lower the cost, of course, and and what drives that is grade and throughput. The there's um, you know normally you would say well it's a single asset company and uh, if there's a bump in the night and you and you and you have a problem in your shaft, but the bulk of these uh, new deposits are ramp accessible. Uh, we've connected them to the existing. Uh, uh, we're connecting them to the existing infrastructure, mm-hmm. so we've, we're mitigating the risk um, uh, that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rock conditions are some of the best rock conditions that uh, I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the from the supply side, our um, our uh, electrical 
um, our electrical grid is is uh, the cheapest, some of the cheapest priced in uh, in North America. Uh, we'll be after hydro to to uh, augment the amount that they can uh, supply us. Uh, we expect that to be uh, completed for um, uh, next year. Um, so all in all, uh, jurisdictionally, you couldn't ask for a better place mm-hmm. to to uh, operate than than uh, Manitoba. So no mm-hmm. no no political risk. And excellent relations with the uh, the Aboriginal communities. In fact, about 45% of our underground workforce is uh, Aboriginal employed, about mm-hmm. 30% uh, overall. So, uh, you know, we're working hard to mitigate all of those all of those risks. And um, the capital that's been invested in the in the operation over the last couple of years has has done that. Um, uh, new facilities, maintenance facilities, um, hoisting facilities. Um, you know, the money in the mill is is uh, upgrading that. We've had the crusher circuit upgraded uh this year mm-hmm. as well um so you know we're, we're there's there's always operating risk but as i run through that checklist i can you know we we yeah. uh, we've working very very hard to uh, mitigate all of those all of those uh, uh areas where you might have a bump in the night and uh yeah. and, and see some see some there's always those opportunities i just and knock on wood i don't see anything that would be uh, catastrophic mm-hmm. uh, in front of us well, it certainly does look like a very a very promising risk reward trade off uh, at this point in time, and I'm sure as uh, if you're able to deliver uh, along the lines of what you're projecting and, and thinking, uh, it looks like you have a, a real growth opportunity here to, yet to be defined by the current exploration program, very aggressive exploration program. So, looking very very good. Is there anything else you might want to tell our listeners before we conclude this discussion? I think you probably pretty well covered it, but is there anything else? Well, we've got a we've already got an excellent line position in the in the, in the Rice Lake area, and obviously, you know, the first order of business is is uh, to uh, consolidate in the in the in the area, and and we're con- we're continuing on with those uh, in those efforts. But uh, we really believe we have a company building asset here, and uh, we'll, we're I think we're about to show the market that this year. Excellent, very very good. Well, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, for enlightening and updating our our listeners. Uh, on your story, it is, it is a, an exceptional story to be sure. Folks, uh, we're going to be right back after the commercial break with Dr. Christopher Glenn Fitchner. He's a medical doctor who heads up a large hospital in Los Angeles, and he's going to talk to us about his new book called Cannabis Economics. Cannabis Economics. Uh, Dr. Fitchner is without a doubt provocative, but I think uh, what he has to say will make a great deal of sense and also cause you to wonder why the United States continues to spend countless billions of dollars each year in fighting a drug war that is hopelessly lost. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Fitchner. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Trevally Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Trevally trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top 10 gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times into Good Times. I am pleased to have with me Dr. Christopher Glenn Fitchner. Dr. Fitchner is the author of Cannabinomics, the Marijuana Policy Tipping Point. His background includes University of California, Riverside, uh, a bachelor's in psychobiology, University of Chicago, Pritzker School of Medicine, uh, where he received his MD in 1987, psychiatry residency uh, at the University of Illinois Medical Center in Chicago, certificate in medical management awarded jointly by the University of Southern California and the American College of Physician Executives and board certification in psychiatry. Dr. Fitchner also attended Columbia University in New York City, uh, where he received a master's in psychology in 1979 
in Princeton Theological Seminary in 1982, where he uh, he also received a Master's in Divinity, with a year of doctoral level work uh, in religion and psychological studies at the University of Chicago. Dr. Fitchner currently holds an appointment as clinical professor in Department of Psychiatry at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, and since 2008 he has worked as a staff psychiatrist for the Riverside County Department of Mental Health in Southern California. Welcome, Dr. Fishner, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks, Jay. It's good to be here. Really interesting, and what a background you have. My goodness, it's uh, very, very impressive. Well, this show is largely about economics, so as we talk about your book, I would like to try to stay focused on that as much as possible, uh, you know, on really on how the current anti-drug policies affect medical economics, uh, if we can uh, go there perhaps and talk about that, uh, as well as the bigger picture of economics in in terms of the cost of of drug uh, law enforcement and so forth. But first, I would like uh, you to tell our listeners a little about the history of marijuana in medicine. Could you just tell us it was at at one time used uh, openly and and was not illegal to be used uh, for medicine, but could you just give our listeners some sense of the legitimate use of marijuana for medicine in the past and then maybe tell us when that was no longer considered legal? Well, yeah, if you pick up, you know, any book that looks at the history of the topic, they'll say that the use of it for as medicine goes back thousands of years. Now, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily make it good medicine, although um, you know, it it has enjoyed a long history. Um, if you're um yeah, as a as a medical student these days, uh, well, maybe not now, but when I was going through medical school, you know, pretty much the only discussions about marijuana were in the substance abuse class. So you don't mm-hmm. really learn about it as medicine there. Although I did learn that um, uh, in 1985, uh, THC or tetrahydrocannabinol—that's the regarded as the most um, active molecule. I mean, we've since learned a lot about marijuana that you know says that there, you know, about herbal cannabis that there are. Um, other compounds that may do other things that are important medicinally, but um, the research up to the mid-1980s had pretty much identified uh, THC as the primary active component, and it certainly is the one that's responsible for the mood elevation and what you would call the high with cannabis, and and so that was made available as a medicine in pill form in 1985 for nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy and also for for, uh, uh, to stimulate appetite and things like uh, AIDS wasting syndrome. But, um, so, you know, you really wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't immediately be apparent, even to me as a medical student at that time, that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, that uh, there were uh, a long history of medicinal uses of cannabis. But if you go back and look at early 20th century medical textbooks and journal articles, uh, you find that um, really it uh, became available um, in, in this country as uh, for medicinal uses. Well, it it certainly has been grown since the you know revolutionary war you know pre-revolution days mm-hmm. uh, there there there's evidence that the founding fathers grew it you know whether mm-hmm. or not they used it just for industrial purposes such as rope or whether that not they used it for you know human internal consumption you know for medicine whether they smoked it uh, you know I, i'm not sure that do we know have a definitive answer to that although you know probably people will say you know weigh in one way or the other but if you go back to around the turn of the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, um, you can find accounts in textbooks uh, about uh, extensive use of uh, herbal cannabis, not necessarily in inhaled form, but it could be used that way, but it was also um, 
uh, an ingredient or a component of uh, many uh, early patent medicines. I think in around uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, there were um, you know some uh, I think 28 to 30 uh, uh, patent medicines that had uh, herbal cannabis in it. I think the important thing with all this is that it was not called marijuana at that time, not as mm-hmm. a medicine. It was called herbal cannabis, which may have um, may have uh, uh, implications for how one reads the history of a Congress that passed uh, the <laughs> Marijuana Tax Act in, ni- Act in 1937, yeah. which um, really, I-, I think, I think it's arguable that between the early, the turn of the century and 1937. Uh, the federal government, although these movements began at the state level, but were really off, were really largely driven by uh, Harry Anslinger, who was the federal uh, chief of the Bureau of Narcotics. It's arguable that during that period, he worked hard to basically rebrand cannabis as marijuana, which was of mm-hmm. course the um, Mexican term for it, and you know was it was easily it was able to able to associate marijuana use with the racial tensions in the Southwest and in the United States. So. Um, by the time the Marijuana Tax Act was passed in 1937, cannabis, which was a common you know, medicine, usually in, 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 in a liquid or tincture form, or in some cases a salve, uh, could be used in many different ways. Um, common, common conditions it was used for back at that time, migraine, uh, menstrual cramps, uh, sometimes as an alternative for other uh, painful syndromes when uh, there was concern about morphine addiction, uh, arthritis. Uh, there was even uh, thoughts that it might be helpful for depression. But, you know, many of the early patent medicines back at that time, before medicine was as highly regulated as it is now, you know, contained concoctions that had several things. They might have, you know, cocaine, opium, and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, cannabis uh, all rolled into one. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were certainly dangers with those early medicines, uh, not primarily related to the cannabis in them, but uh, mm-hmm. other compounds that had, you know, uh, that were more dangerous, such as the potential for opiates to um, suppress, you know, respiratory, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, uh, suppress respiratory drive and lead to, mm-hmm. you know, um, cessation of breathing. So there were some, you know, deaths with inappropriate dosing of those kinds mm-hmm. of medicines, but, mm-hmm. but not, uh, that's not something that could be primarily pinned on, um, on herbal cannabis. So, mm-hmm. so it does, uh, there, it was pretty actively used in the early part of the 20th century, although, you know, it was never white. You know, as widely used as morphine as a pain reliever. You know, never as widely used as uh, aspirin. Uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for milder conditions. But uh, but it but there was a role for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess because morphine is considered a more effective painkiller. Is that is that the reason? And if yeah, that was the reason. Yeah, and easier to standardize in, ter- in terms of it's not only its dosing but its uh, absorption and the way the body treats it. It's more consistent. Okay, and what do we know, or do you have any opinions based on on analysis in the past with respect to the dangers of either drug? Because certainly morphine is, you know, it has its dangers. Yeah, well, um, certainly the, there's been, you know, marijuana is is called a dangerous drug, you know, mm-hmm. in the um, in the uh, DEA, you know, scheduling structure where mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a uh, Drug without any medicinal potential and a you know high potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of evidence uh, and more and more coming out in in actual controlled studies that really um, overturns that point of view. Even though we haven't changed it at the federal level, um, in terms of uh, the dangers of, of of cannabis, I think. Um, uh, there are uh, you know it's hard to. 
what's the way into that discussion? I mean, you can mm-hmm. compare it to other drugs. We have shelves full of over-the-counter drugs that are far more dangerous, that if taken in high quantities can be mm-hmm. lethal and can be uh, very impairing. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, no one in advocating that, that, that cannabis be regulated, nobody is advocating that people consume large amounts of marijuana and then get behind mm-hmm. the wheel of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, certainly the more cannabis you use, the more likely there's going to be um, not only psychological but motor impairment. But many of the folks that I've met who use it medicinally use just what they need. They get Mm -hmm. pain relief or muscle relaxation, and they don't walk around impaired. In fact, they're quite articulate. Uh, Mm -hmm. A woman that uh, had a big influence, whom I write about in in, in marijuana, in in, in cannabinomics, uh, in Illinois, where I first was um, kind of prompted to get involved in in helping the advocacy community there. I was state director of mental health between 2003 and 2005. And advocates approached me at that time about uh, getting involved in really kind of digging in and looking at the data and, and, and helping them, supporting them, you know, trying to get a medical marijuana law passed. And Julie Falco, who was in her 40s at that time, had suffered from multiple sclerosis for about 20 years, um, really told me a lot about the way that she used it. She didn't smoke it at all. She took uh, three small brownies a day, and mm-hmm. she found that um, – uh, over time, she was able to, you know, reduce her use of opiate pain relievers to where she only needed to use them occasionally. She used Tylenol number four, you know, with codeine. She was able to use those only occasionally, and as a result, they worked better. If she used them frequently, you know, when she was not using herbal cannabis, she developed constipation and they mm-hmm. didn't work as well. She became tolerant to them. She also was prescribed muscle relaxers, which were so sedating for her that she'd be flat on her back. She was able to completely discontinue those with the use of herbal cannabis. Mm-hmm. And not only did she have fewer muscle spasms and better pain relief, but her strength was better, and mm-hmm. uh, she had better bladder control. And she had been on antidepressants because multiple sclerosis often affects mood, not just because mm-hmm. you have a debilitating illness, a disabling disease, and, uh, and you may get depressed because of that, but also because of the direct effects of multiple sclerosis on the brain. You may get uh, anxiety, uh, even a bipolar-type picture where you have mm. mood swings and, and depression. And she had been put on antidepressants for that, which also uh, caused her side effects that, uh, she, you know, th- that she didn't tolerate well. So um, by the time you know, I met her and she was regularly using herbal cannabis, she had pared back a lot of her other medicines and uh, was feeling a lot better and, and, and relied on the herbal cannabis as her primary um, as her primary uh, medication strategy and this remember was in Illinois where they did not have and do not have an active uh, uh, medical cannabis law although they, ha- they do have an older one on the books that goes back to the 70s that was never really fully implemented but um, just to, to, to add one more uh, one more piece to this um, there is a medicine that's been approved in Canada for about uh, six or seven years for multiple sclerosis that is a whole herbal cannabis extract that is um, sprayed under the tongue as a liquid so we, and that you know in order to get that approved they had to demonstrate studies that you know demonstrate in um, controlled clinical trials that it was uh, effective and that that research was done in England at, where the where the medicine is produced by GW pharmaceutical the medicine's called Sativex so mm-hmm. so we know that even now in other countries uh, not the United States currently there are whole herbal cannabis extracts at least this one uh, that are used uh, for multiple sclerosis and uh, Julie Falco was in fact using it um, 
you know, during the time that I was state mental health director when I mm-hmm. met her and had the opportunity to learn about it. So mm-hmm. uh, her story was fairly compelling, and I guess the point that I'm making is uh, she's not at all identified with the kind of uh, let's get high sort yeah. of, you know, counterculture, the stereotype. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a very lucid individual who's, you know, easily able to hold her own testifying to legislatures in committee or on the floor, you know, in the, um, you know, in the uh, House and Senate at the state at the state legislature. So this is a woman who's bright, capable, articulate, and not impaired. So, um, so in terms of you'd ask me about the dangers, and I'm saying certainly mm-hmm. in higher doses there are mm-hmm. dangers. But in terms of things like lethality or major organ system damage of the kind that. Uh, you know, alcohol to to the liver, or mm-hmm. uh, or or to the or to even the, the association of either alcohol or tobacco with um, many forms of cancer: head and neck cancer, lung cancer, esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have those kinds of associations with cannabis. I mean, there are a few studies that have suggested those associations, but when you look at the larger studies that have controlled for the presence of alcohol uh, or tobacco use, um, you just do not find a relationship between uh, any cancer and uh, and marijuana use, uh, even smoked marijuana, you, you don't find that relationship. You find some things that might be suggestive of it, but you do not find uh, that relationship. And in fact, uh, the more re- recent studies that have been larger and better controlled have actually suggested that there may be an inverse relationship. So that mm. marijuana use in one study in, in 2009 was found to actually be associated with a lower risk of head and neck cancer, of squamous cell head and neck cancer in, in a study that came out in the summer of 2009. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, your book makes a, a compelling case for many examples in, in the book about uh, people that have benefited from the use of marijuana in one form or another. And I'm wondering, I mean, and, and it's, it's curious, the person you were talking about going back in history, I think you said in 1937, I don't remember exactly, where he sort of ter- used the terminology instead of uh, uh, cannabis, he started referring to marijuana. And, and you're, uh, if I understood you right, you're questioning maybe one of the reasons the laws were passed against marijuana is that the legislatures did, legislators didn't really understand that there was a legitimate use uh, and a historical use, and it was well documented uh, for the use of, of cannabis. Uh, is, is that was that part of it? Be made for that, yeah. And, and what was the and and this person I don't recall now who you said he was. I don't remember reading him about him in the book, but the individual that was responsible for sort of pushing an anti-marijuana program. I mean, do we know anything about what his interests were? I think you said he worked in the drug uh, administration or some drug uh, bureaucracy. Yeah, he was the first director of the Federal Bureau Bureau of Narcotics, uh, which mm-hmm. would have been the you know predecessor to the DEA. Uh, the Federal Bureau Bureau of Narcotics was um, uh, Harry Anslinger was uh, okay. the individual's mm-hmm. name, and um, he he also had some connections to people who. Um, uh, had some, uh, you know, larger special interests. I mean, it's mm-hmm. been argued that, you know, Randall, uh, William Randolph Hearst may have been uh, important, influential in this area for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. And hemp, hemp was a potential competitor for, um, you know, as a source for making paper. And, of course, he had forests and he had, uh, you know, newspapers. So, um, you know, some people have made the case that that, you know, that, that influence may have, have shaped, uh, you know, Hearst's influence may have shaped uh, Anslinger. But, mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, um, Anslinger had an agenda to, um, you know, rid, uh, you know, rid the United States of uh, of, um, of cannabis, and mm-hmm. and he uh, did that by using the term uh, marijuana at least, and you know, and demonizing, and that was the whole yeah. madness. Yeah. He was behind that whole that whole movement. 
Well, certainly when we think of marijuana, the image is, just as you said, it's the, the pot-smoking kids of the 60s and 70s, uh, the counterculture, the people that are, uh, you, you know, that are, that are considered on the fringes or people that are not mainstream. Uh, and yet you're talking about examples of people who have used it very, you know, very responsibly. And I think about, you know, how many deaths a year occur from alcohol? How many deaths a year occur from smoking, uh, from tobacco? I mean, it's it's huge. And then what benefits do we see? I mean, are there any medicinal benefits? Uh, I suppose there are. You can make some cases for for uh, for wines, I suppose. Uh, some people do, probably especially those that like to drink a lot. But uh, yeah, yeah. what what do you um, – I mean, it just seems to me we – I know – I don't know the numbers, but I, I know traffic deaths, for example, with alcohol, uh, and, and not to mention the, the medical problems that you just talked about, liver and, and right. all kinds of problems with smoking. Uh, how – it doesn't make sense. I mean – Well, um, yeah, well, the um – the uh, you know the book cannabinomics uh, is is really divided into three sections. There's mm -hmm. one on you know cannabis and medicine, which you know tracks the the medical marijuana movement. Argues that it's growing, which it is. I think New, uh, Delaware just became the what 16th state to pass one of these newer laws uh, that allows access um, you know for some conditions with a physician's approval to herbal cannabis. And um, so this was. Um, so the first part of it, uh, first part of the book deals with that policy trajectory. The second part, uh, cannabis and the drug war, cannabis and public health, looks at it as a public health issue. And of course, the third part of the book looks at it more in terms of economics. But they all, but economics permeates all three, and we can talk about that. But um, what the thesis of the, of the book is that at this point in time, we can see data. You know, it's you know, looking back in the last few years, five, ten, fifteen years, we can see. A convergence of these three policy trajectories, as I call them in the book, and um, the one that you're touching on is uh, the, is part two, really, is the is the public health uh, aspect of it. And you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned um, just the issue of uh, of accidents, you know, on mm -hmm. the highway, and that's sure. been pretty well researched uh, in Europe and in Canada and in Australia and in the United States. And uh, you know, what we know is that uh, um, you know certainly uh, people who are driving under the influence of, uh, of, of cannabis, um, you know, there is the statistics, the studies show that there is uh, you know, an increase in risk of accidents, but it's nowhere near the uh, increase in risk that you see with alcohol, nowhere near it. And uh, in fact, the studies that have actually looked at um, what do people do when they uh, are given, you know, uh, inhaled marijuana and then get behind the wheel of a car? And, you know, what do they do, in, you know, in their driving? How does it change their driving? And what they find is it, 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 it tends to be um, changes that uh, go along with uh, being um, more cautious about uh, driving. So they tend to slow down. They tend to put more distance between themselves and the car ahead. And they tend to weave a little bit in the road, but not much, as though they're overcorrecting. Uh, whereas people, you know, you know, with alcohol, notoriously, you know, get behind the wheel of a car and push the pedal to the floor and become yeah. reckless. I mean, that that would be the, you know, kind of a generalization. But nonetheless, it's um, you know, there is that um, th there is that difference that might explain why uh, the public health data, the studies that have actually looked at this, do not find that the increase in um, uh, risk of uh, of accidents with uh, uh, associated with cannabis use is anywhere near as large as. Uh, with alcohol. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, some estimates have been uh, from some studies, I think with a Canadian study, about a 30% 
increase in risk uh, associated with marijuana, whereas there's at minimum 100% risk associated with alcohol. And in mm -hmm. some of the studies, it goes as high as, um, uh, you know, like uh, 20 to 30 times the risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it certainly seems it seems strange to me. It doesn't it, it doesn't add up really when you look at the except except it does in a way because there's big money in tobacco, there's big money in alcohol, there's not big money in marijuana right now. If people grow it in their backyards, is there? I mean, is that part of what's going on here, or do you see some possibility of large pharmaceuticals um, getting in uh, in conjunction with government legislation and perhaps making a big industry out of marijuana? Well, see, you, know, you touched on a really important issue that kind of needs to be um, dissected. I mean, first of all, if you look at some of the current estimates of uh, what, what would the potential revenue be if we change the way we manage cannabis in our society, and, you know, you know part of the analysis involves, you know, the um, lowering the amount of uh, money that is spent on criminalization, so reduce law enforcement costs, reduce, you know, uh, incidents of having to jail people and you know mm -hmm. defend cases in court and so forth. So mm -hmm. there's all of that. <clears throat> Excuse me, at the federal and local and state levels, <clears throat> has cost reductions. Then there's also the estimates on what if um, what if there was tax revenue based on uh, the current usage. So most of the most of the economic estimates try to be conservative and base base it on the current usage. Some of the estimates go a little further and say, well, what if you allow for uh, some development of the industry, and then the um, uh, the numbers immediately get much much bigger. And um, uh, a couple of the estimates uh, in California, uh, the um, the economic activity is show uh, currently, you know, not projecting into the future, but currently, uh, the as a cash crop, marijuana uh, has been shown to be uh, to beat grapes in terms of its value. So we mm. don't know about the wine industry and mm. the number of jobs that creates, and the wow. marijuana sold in California, grown and sold in California, is more valuable as a cash crop than grapes. And then huh. there's also been a study that's argued that uh, marijuana beats, um, you know, it's grown in all 50 states, it's very widely used, uh, there's very high demand for it, and it's been argued that as a cash crop, it exceeds the value not only of corn and wheat, but of corn and wheat combined. Mm -hmm. So you know, that's pretty, um, uh, you know, that's a pretty, you know, major uh, potential source of revenue. And that's really looking at just, you know, as it is now, the value of what's being traded in the, in the underground. And then, of mm -hmm. course, if that's taxed, that brings in additional revenue. But I think where, where the conversation gets interesting is you look at if, um, if, cannabis, herbal cannabis were regulated, uh, first of all, you'd have to figure out exactly how it would be regulated, but you know, odds are it would be a multi-level regulatory process because a, a medicine of the one, like the one I was describing earlier that's been approved in Canada and is currently right now actually being researched in the United States for FDA approval. It's a liquid, mm -hmm. a liquid cannabis extract that has a very specific type of standardization in terms of a couple of the different compounds in it, but it's not just two molecules that are combined. It's actually an extract that tries to preserve the full array of compounds that are in herbal cannabis, but it's a very sophisticated standardization process, and that has to be you know, probably at one level of regulation, and then you could imagine at the opposite end, you know, maybe at the lower level of regulation, it would just be how much would you be allowed to grow in your own home for your own use, and then somewhere in between, it would be if you're selling 
small amounts of it or large amounts of it, whatever it would be, in um, in uh, you know in, in raw herbal form or in uh, cannabis enhanced beverages or edibles. Uh, you know, would there be intermediate levels of regulation where it would mm-hmm. be based on strain or based on just a THC concentration? So there's a whole potential spectrum of you know regulatory activity and and and, and the activity that goes along with that in terms of uh, uh, you know licensure and things like that. But where um, where the economic uh, sort of crux really, I think, where the rubber really hits the road on this is um, we're now evaluating this is, uh, the medicine I was talking about earlier, the Sativex, the, uh, the mm-hmm. liquid cannabis extract that's being mm-hmm. researched for possible approval by the FDA. Um, that's something that's being studied right now, uh, and it's produced from outside. It's produced outside this country uh, in, in England, and yet. In places like California, where you've had a medical marijuana law in place for some time, or, or Colorado, where a little bit less time, but there's been a medical marijuana law in place, and a number of other states as well, um, it's possible to find many such substances very similar to uh, what is being you know, researched now for FDA approval. In other words, liquid cannabis extracts that are either sprayed under the tongue or administered under the tongue with an eyedropper, or in some cases, cannabis-enhanced beverages that are more like a, more like a tonic or like the old uh, patent medicine, but just based on, uh, on a uh, cannabis preparation only. And um, some of those, uh, you know, there are many different products of that sort that are accessible to people with medical marijuana cards uh, in California. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them are, uh, there are some labs that are emerging now, and some of these uh, uh, entrepreneurs are beginning to standardize their products in terms of measuring, you know, what's, uh, what's in it, uh, ratio of compounds lead to what's being done with uh, the medicine Sativex. The issue is that we don't know whether these compounds that are being, or these, these products that are being produced in California or Colorado or elsewhere in the United States, we don't know if they could compete uh, effectively head-to-head against the one that we're looking at from outside the country. Why don't we know that? Because it's not possible to research it at that level in the United States because of its uh, uh, illegality under federal law. Mm-hmm. So it raises the question, if, if local entrepreneurs, local producers of cannabis-based products not necessarily for smoking, for, you know, it could be for other routes of administration. If these folks were allowed to enter into the global and even the interstate commercial cannabinoid medicine market, what might that mean in terms of uh, uh, economic um, mm-hmm. uh, activity for at, at, you know, at the grassroots level and at mm-hmm. the state level and then expanding, you know, uh, you know, depending on what states would allow across the country. But what would that be? Uh, I think that's where the real potential economic uh, gain is. Uh, certainly, you know, the estimates on what we could gain from taxing what's consumed now are substantial. But if you allow for that further development, especially into the medicinal industry, and others would argue into the industrial uses as well, now you're looking at uh, a much larger economic force. Mm-hmm. So the research end of it is really controlled by the federal government, I guess, or or, is, or at least uh, on the, in the private sector is not allowed to, to move forward because of the control by the federal government. Is that right? Well, in, I, I, yes. I, I imagine there are still ways. Uh, there, there certainly are. There, there have been a limited number of therapeutic studies with herbal cannabis that have been approved by the federal government. Some of them have been done out in California. Of course, those studies are required to use only the um, marijuana that is grown by the federal government itself, and there's only one place where that's done. It's in Mississippi, um, the University of Mississippi. There's a lab there. And many people uh, who are involved in the medicinal cannabis movement now 
uh, argue that that material is um, you know is not uh, is not competitive in terms of the, the quality of it is not as good as what's produced uh, elsewhere hmm. and that that uh, that lab exists primarily um, to um, provide marijuana for substance abuse research, which is done mm-hmm. by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So uh, it's really the only way of thinking about marijuana at the federal level has been almost exclusively uh, as a substance of abuse. But despite that, I think because there are some people that have been uh, really leaning on the federal government to get some access to herbal cannabis for uh, studies of, for example, with um, AIDS neuropathy and you know some uh, illness, you know, pain management uh, in some of the in some of the centers in California where they've looked at this. They have been able to get uh, some federal marijuana for a limited number of studies. But um, and then there are other other studies that are going on at the state and local level that really wouldn't fit FDA criteria. They're not con- they're not placebo controlled, double blind scientific experiments, but they're more just uh, prospective, uh, anecdotal uh, collection of data and, you know, pulling together, you know, the the reports of, say, 100 patients or several hundred patients who have gotten recommendations and are using the herbal cannabis and they're reporting back to their doctors about how it's working for them. So there's that kind of research is ongoing, Mm -hmm. but there's a gap between that level of research and the research that would be required to take a product to uh, market in mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the FDA. So really, when you mentioned the, is it about um, is it about uh, you know uh, big pharma? You know the answer is yes, but it's also about um, about. Uh, uh, juxtaposing this idea that we are now preparing to bring in, a, uh, you know, a, a highly standardized pharmaceutically, you know, manufactured and yet still a natural herbal cannabis extract from outside the country, mm-hmm. and yet we're suppressing that type of uh, uh, research and product development at the local grassroots level, mm-hmm. and thus depriving the United States uh, possibly of. of um of generating some good uh, products that that could uh, be uh, revenue generators, tax generators, and so forth. Well, it amounts to shipping um, jobs or business opportunity overseas mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. it amounts to. Well, it wouldn't be the first industry that we've done that. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> I suppose. But um, well, you have a lot of very interesting um, examples in your book of people. There was one. Uh, there was a uh, a glaucoma uh, a person with glaucoma, glaucoma yeah. and, mm-hmm. and was using. Marijuana that he grew himself, uh, and then I guess was arrested. Could you talk uh, talk to our listeners about that? I think that was uh, that was really a historical example, not somebody that I had interviewed more recently, mm-hmm. but it was a historical example. Um, Robert um, Randall, Randall who, yeah. was, mm-hmm. uh, who was the individual who kind of got the uh, uh, because he had glaucoma at that point in time, that was one of the um, uh, really the only medicine that provided him relief that he could tolerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was growing it himself, and uh, yes, he was arrested for it. He fought it in court, uh, ultimately won, and that was the beginning of the um, what they called the Federal Compassionate Use Program, mm-hmm. the Investigational New Drug Program, and that mm-hmm. began in oh, 1976, 78, in that in that time period, and. Um, uh, it was possible at that point for uh, for an individual to um, uh, who was awarded this uh, status with the invest- in the investigational new new drug program to uh, receive um, uh, marijuana from the federal government uh, uh, 
uh, for their condition. And there were, I think, the, the largest number of people that were ever in that program. I think it was uh, 28, if I'm not mistaken, but it was a uh, you know, relatively small number you know, for a mm-hmm. uh, na- nationwide issue. But, um, but in fact, during that period, um, in the late 70s and into the 80s and even maybe even into the early 90s before the program was shut down in 1992, there were about 35 states that passed um, what I call in, in the book first-generation medical cannabis laws. Mm-hmm. In other words, those were laws, medical marijuana laws, that were designed to facilitate the state participation in the federal compassionate use program. In those, other words, the first-generation laws were laws that were designed to work with the federal government uh, mm-hmm. to help uh, patients access what it is they needed. When California came along in 1996 and passed uh, – you know, it's current medical marijuana law. Um, that really began what, what I refer to in the book as a second generation of medical marijuana laws. And those laws are ones that uh, were, were sort of predicated on the, on, the, um, on the idea that, you know, if the federal government is not going to manage this substance reasonably, you know, despite the recommendations of its own experts regarding uh, the relative lack of harms and the medicinal benefits and the recommendation of a DEA judge in 1988 that uh, there's all the evidence uh, suggests that, that cannabis at minimum needs to be rescheduled from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2 so that it could be available for medical use, that if the federal government wasn't going to listen to this, you know, um, critical mass of data saying this, we need to change this, then the state was going to at least uh, take matters into their own hands to the extent that um, they would uh, not prosecute people who, with their doctor's uh, approval, were using it for a legitimate medical condition. Mm-hmm. So really, the second generation medical marijuana laws began as a form of uh, selective decriminalization. We're not going to do the prosecution that the federal government might want to do. If they want to do that, they're going to have to do it themselves because, you know, we've got a lot of people here who are asking to have access to it uh, medicinally, and we're not going to stand in the way of that. So it really began, the second generation really began as a, um, you know, as a, as a state's rights movement. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and it just it just to me it's just mind boggling when I think back and I look at some of the examples, I mean the historical examples in your book, but President Nixon had appointed a commission that recommended the decriminalization of marijuana and uh and recognized its its benefits medicinally. Uh and then I believe it was President Bush in ninety two you were mentioning uh that did away with the compassionate use program that was a federal program. But I'm wondering to what extent do states really have uh, autonomy uh, to exercise? I mean, they can pass states can pass laws, and it gets down to the states' rights issue that you're talking about. To what extent are state laws uh, in danger of being overridden by federal laws? Well, I think that's a that's a topic of ongoing debate, and in fact, um, that was kind of uh, fought out in, in in Southern California with uh, several counties who uh, filed a, a suit to argue that. Um, because state law conflicted with federal law, that um, that uh, the, the people at the local law enforcement level uh, in, in several counties in California, uh, you know, were justified in enforcing the federal law and not paying attention to the state law because mm-hmm. the idea was that federal law trumps state law. Mm-hmm. But that um, that was overturned in California in the California courts, and uh, the idea being that the California law just simply says. In essence, we're not going to do the dirty work of, of, of the federal government. And mm-hmm. In other words, if the federal 
government really wanted to prosecute this you know, and send an army out to California to raid every every dispensary that's out here, uh, you know, if they've got the resources to do that, they could certainly do that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the federal government could decide to do that. They could decide to arrest everybody who's in violation of, you know, every marijuana possession law that they want to. But they they waste a lot of resources, and they're certainly not going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be possible because they have continued to raid uh, dispensaries in a lot of states, and and the, and the dispensaries and the and the movement keeps bouncing back, and it's going to continue to bounce back mm-hmm. because there are a lot of courageous individuals that have been, you know, working on this a lot longer than than I've been involved with it, uh, who have uh, sacrificed a lot, who've been willing to, you know, um, throw themselves. Uh, you know, uh, in, in in front of this issue, and um, you know, and fight it. I mean, one of the things that um, examples from California that comes to mind is uh, the Bay Area. In I think it was a 2003. I think there may have been one raid in the late 90s, and then early um, early part of the first decade, uh, uh, you know, of this century. Um, the Women's Alliance for um, Medical Marijuana was uh, built on a true collective model, where they had patients doing an outdoor grow. And they were just growing for one another, and they were distributing the different strains that they were growing, and they were collecting data in a prospective way. And they weren't scientists, but they were collecting reports from people about which strain they liked the most and for what reason. You know, some were better at muscle relaxation, some were better mm-hmm. at pain relief, some seemed to be better to help people to sleep or reduce their anxiety. So they were collecting these kinds of uh, data, and uh, and they were raided by uh, local law enforcement along with federal officials. And uh, they basically tore up all their plants, confiscated all their data, and uh, really um, reacted in a way that, you know, to suppress that kind of uh, grassroots uh, uh, effort. And I just think that contrasts um, uh, notably with uh, the process we're looking at now, where, um, where we have a, a liquid uh, cannabis extract that's being looked at uh, for potential FDA, FDA approval at this point. But it comes from outside this country rather mm-hmm. than being a grassroots initiative. All right. Well, I'm wondering, with respect to this federal law trumping state law, whether, you know, certainly the federal government has the the resources because they can create money out of nothing and, and, you know, and go off to foreign countries with large military efforts and so forth. They could do it if they wanted to, but I'm wondering if there's probably wouldn't be counterproductive politically for them to do that if, uh, you know, because I think when you present the facts, as you're doing in your book and we're doing on this program, American people, if they have a chance to really know the truth, will come down on the right side of things. They will, they'll come down on the logical side of things uh, as a group. So it seems to me that um, you know that, that what you're moving towards here is a popular movement that makes sense. And when people realize when the stigma, the dogma, uh, anti-marijuana dogma is removed, that, that mainstream people will finally uh, adapt it. We've got to take a commercial break, and uh, I want to come right back and ask you some things about the war on drugs and its cost. Um, and where you think we're going now uh, with Obama's health care? Is there anything there uh, that's promising with respect to the legalization of some of these drugs that might make sense? Don't go away. We're going to be right back with Dr. Fitchner. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 